Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dan Catchpole, reporter with News Data's Clearing Up, and with me is my co-host and the editor of News Data's California Energy Markets, Jason Fordney. We're here with some of our top stories. Jason, what do you have for us this week? Hi, Dan. Happy Halloween. I'm here today to talk about California Energy Commission hearing details of possible billions of dollars in new state and federal funding coming in the 2022-2023 budget cycle. And then I have a pretty contentious hearing last week at California Air Resources Board over its advanced clean fleets regulation, um, which re- requiring electric trucks. Some strong feedback there from uh, people in the trucking industry. And then finally, I'll talk about some new figures I found on uh, what it's going to take to integrate EVs onto the California grid. I've got uh, an update on nuclear reaction, moving a step closer to becoming a more practical reality in the Northwest. Some interesting resource acquisitions by big utilities in the Northwest and flip-flopping weather this past year that gave us a really weird water year that turned out to be totally average in the end. So nuclear generation is making further advances in the Northwest and the West. Pacific Core and TerraPower recently said that they plan to study the possibility of putting up to five of TerraPower's natrium small modular reactors and storage system in Pacific Core's territory by 2035. Uh, The study could influence Pacific Core's future resource strategy. They plan to evaluate putting advanced reactors near current fossil fuel generation sites, which would let Pacific Core reuse the existing generation transmission assets to benefit its customers. So Pacific Core plans to retire 14 of its 22 coal-fired generation units by the end of this decade. So there's a big hole that Pacific Core needs to fill, and it's looking at nuclear reactors as a possible answer. Now, TerraPower is currently working on a demonstration project in Wyoming. It wants to build a 345-megawatt small modular reactor in uh, the state near Pacific Core's soon-to-be-retired coal-fired Naughton power plant. TerraPower plans to have the reactor operational by 2028. And in other nuclear energy news, an energy tech startup in based out of Seattle thinks it might be able to bring star power to Centralia, site of Washington's last coal-fired power plant. Zap Energy plans to conduct a feasibility assessment of developing a nuclear fusion reactor at the site. And it got some money from the Centralia Coal Transition Board to help it do that. So Zap Energy is trying to develop the first practical nuclear fusion reactor. So nuclear fusion generates energy by pushing together two atomic nuclei to form a heavier nucleus. And in doing so, that releases energy. So it's the same process that fuels the sun and other stars. Uh, Now, most current efforts at this use hydrogen isotopes, which create far less radioactive waste than nuclear fission, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. It's also a much more abundant fuel than uranium and plutonium and other uh, isotopes that are used in nuclear fission. So we'll see, but some important steps here, looking at practically moving nuclear energy towards becoming actual resources on the grid. So we'll be watching these developments, certainly. Yeah, a lot of movement on the small nuclear side. We've got one reactor coming into the Western EIM. It's going to be at the Idaho National Lab site. And then I did notice 
uh, Tennessee Valley Authority uh, said, I guess, this weekend or recently that they're looking at 20 small reactors over there. So, yeah, this seems to be a resource gaining more traction. Definitely a lot of investment going in it. And uh, we'll be here to see what happens. Indeed. And speaking of investment, you've got a story about investment in new energy resources in California for us. Yes, this is coverage from California Energy Commission's meeting last week from Linda, Linda Daly-Paulson. There were no voting items on the agenda. That was deliberate, according to the CEC, a little bit of an unusual uh, meeting. But what they wanted to do is provide an opportunity for the commissioners to have deeper discussions on topics that might otherwise get short shrift. A lot of discussion um, on a historic amount of new funding, 10.47 billion, so about 10.5 billion that will be available over the next several years. Uh, some of it will go to specific programs. Some will be used to support internal CEC projects such as energy modeling and offshore wind planning. Some of the funding, namely $1 billion for clean energy and reliability initiatives, is scheduled to be part of the 2023-2024 budget development. So, yeah, um, the CEC was kind of agog about the amount of money coming in, over $10 billion. Uh, Commissioner uh, Hochschild said the combined added funding, quote, an unimaginable amount of money, unquote, said California's economy is on track to surpass the size of Germany's next year, which make it the fourth largest economy in the world. A lot of uh, chatter about that this weekend. And uh, yeah, there's still not a whole lot of information regarding some of the federal funding, such as uh, some of the funding coming out with the Inflation Reduction Act. And CEC is still investigating whether participating and some of the competitive programs, such as funding for energy code updates, will be worthwhile. Uh, Commissioner Andrew McAllister said, it's, quote, it's great to have all this federal money. Um, and then uh, there was some discussion of how it doesn't automatically mean California will get a federal grant, but uh, lots of money available coming in. And uh, yeah, I've, I've written about this a few times recently. Um large amount of money coming in you got 380 million for long duration storage 100 million for hydrogen uh 922 million for equitable building decarbonization program we'll see how that flies the cec spent uh an entire meeting just discussing about the the funding that's coming in yeah a lot of investment in california as we go forward speaking of new resources we've got a couple updates here on some big resource acquisitions. So Portland General Electric plans to acquire 311 megawatts of Montana's largest wind farm, the Clearwater Wind Project in eastern Montana. PGE wants to buy 208 megawatts of the 775 megawatt project through a build transfer agreement with Nextera Energy Resources, which is developing the wind farm. And then the utility wants to buy the uh, require the other 103 megawatts through a 30-year power purchase agreement. And in 2021, Puget Sound Energy, one of the biggest utilities in the Northwest, signed a 20-year power purchase agreement with Nextera for 350 megawatts of clear water power. So this uh, project will be a really important piece of decarbonizing uh, the resource portfolios for 
PGE and PSE. So just to keep your acronym straight there, everybody, Portland, Portland General Electric and Puget Sound Energy. Yes. Uh, Montana wind has huge potential to help Washington and Oregon decarbonize the low or the generation profile for Montana wind really complements the generation profile for Northwest hydropower. Pacific Core signed a power purchase agreement for 400 megawatts of solar plus storage in Utah. And it's buying that from the Salt Lake City based renewable energy develop R developer R plus energies. So another big announcement here in uh, decarbonizing resource portfolios in the Northwest. All right. Well, thank you for that reporting from clearing up. Back in California, we covered uh, the California Air Resources Board. This is our freelancer, Rory Sweeney, covered this for us. He described it as a marathon hearing, October 27th. This is in preparation for uh, the final touches of the proposed advanced clean fleets regulation as uh, California looks to electrify trucking. This would require deployment of zero emission vehicles in some trucking fleets starting in 2024 and ban sales of new vehicles with internal combustion engines by 2040. Um, two years of work on this so far, initially announced in 2020. A lot, a lot of commenters, as you might imagine, um, you know, for the trucking and this is such a massive change for the trucking industry. One person, uh, I don't think Rory got his name, but described himself as a representative of a small family run trucking company was pointing out that eight, eight weeks ago, Californians were told not to charge their Teslas at night to avoid blackouts. If I were told tomorrow, this is our, our trucking representative, if I were told tomorrow after making a half million dollar investment that I could not charge my class eight electric truck to not overburden the power grid, it would mean I would have no equipment to operate the next morning. He said his drivers would sued me out of work. His company would likely cease to be going concerned. So I think the impact on smaller owner operators is one concern. I do believe there's a cutoff for these rules. In other words, you have to have a fleet of a certain size. Um, two more, more than two dozen state legislatures uh, wrote um, CARB saying, requesting that many health and environmental advocates later echoed, and that's to speed up the transition by accelerating the sales ban on new internal combustion engines to 2036 and moving the transition for so-called sleeper cab trucks up three years to 2027. So CARB is kind of in hmm. between the trucking industry, understandably, with its concerns and environmental groups saying, no, you need to do this more quickly, more aggressively. And yeah. that's sort of the classic conversation that we have here in California. Yeah, so, that, yeah. Is, that is an interesting comment by the person who said he is a representative of a small family-run trucking company there based in Long Beach in LA um, about, hey, just a few weeks ago, we heard don't charge Teslas at night. Uh, so, yeah, yeah there's I mean, a lot of talk about this. Uh, you know, this the conservation calls we had in September were fairly soon after CARB passed the, the zero emission EV regular, you know, light vehicle rule. It's a valid question, you know. Um, when your grid is sputtering as it is, how are you going to do this? Uh, but there's also time, you know, these timelines are, are not tomorrow or anything. But yeah, it's a lot of discussion, social media and uh, commentary in the media on the fact that California has some pretty well publicized problems. 
and yet uh, there's a lot more EVs coming, which actually maybe that's a good segue into my next topic, which was bottom lines this week. Um, Taking a look at some of the integration of EV issues. Um, Obviously, the state recently passed a requirement the vehicles sold by 2035 be zero emission. EVs will be the vast majority of those. So um, the study I I took a look at by Alan Jen of University of California, Davis, and Jake Heileman of the Cadmus Group found that reaching California's goal of adding 5 million EVs by 2030 would result in about 20 terawatt hours of additional demand. That's about a 10% increase in total load. And as we know, this is happening also as the state's transitioning to a zero emission electric grid. Here's a quote from the study. We find that the growth of electric vehicles in California will inevitably lead to stresses on the electric electricity distribution infrastructure due to the additional electricity demand from charging these vehicles. Chargers also have typically higher draws, level one chargers, about one kilowatt. Um, And then there's chargers that go up to all the way to 350 kilowatts. And this study was really specific. They looked at uh, feeder circuit level data from Pacific Gas and Electric, measure the capacity of local feeders. One thing I found interesting in the high adoption scenario of 6 million electric vehicles, uh, that would require upgrading 443 PG&E circuits. Right now, only 88 feeders have planned upgrades. So yeah, similar situation to the trucks. We have several dynamics at play, charging infrastructure, the amount of energy capacity, um, and the, the number of new EVs coming in. And then another interesting study from James Bushnell and David Rapson from Energy Institute at Haas, University of California, Berkeley, uh, saying the cost of EV integration is likely poor, poorly understood. The study is called the electric ceiling limits and costs of full electrification. Notes the EV share of the U.S. auto market has grown fivefold to about 3%. California is a symbol of the collective will to move strongly in that direction. Ford, General Motors, Volvo, Mercedes-Benz, and others have declared a goal of only selling EVs by 2035 in leading markets. Uh, Here's a quote from the study. While the explosive growth of the EV sector now seems guaranteed, there are reasons to be skeptical of the inevitability or at least the optimal pace of the complete electrification of passenger transportation and residential energy uses. Research is beginning to uh, be developed on this topic. And yeah, they, they made one point, you know, EVs are sort of seen as a disruptive new technology coming in, but they're different from say a smartphone or a flat screen TV, which is innately superior to what was replaced. Uh, Zevs, you know, they have more disparate technologies uh, there's plug-in hybrid vehicles, there's fuel cells. So you don't have that very specific wave of new technology coming in like you had with uh, the iPhone. And then finally, there's, of course, the average cost of the EV is about $66,000, roughly equal to Americans' average, average annual income. Uh, whereas an ICE a vehicle has an average cost of about 48000 But yeah, as I said... 
many of the moving parts here and sometimes squeezing a balloon. Um, and yeah, the costs, I, you know, personally, I, I'm not totally sure we understand the costs and the impacts on the grid, but there will be a lot of research going into that in the coming years for sure. Oh yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm, I'm pretty positive that we don't understand <laughs> all that. You know, I was thinking about this while you're talking and uh, one thing that just fascinates me about this industry and I'm sure it fascinates our listeners too. And I, I know it does, this applies to you is that one, we have all these changes going on that are so dynamic and the changes are changing, right? Uh, but that's all going on in an industry that still has very static, rigid parameters in terms of utilities, transmission. You know, there's, it's not like with iPhones or home computing, uh, PCs, right. cloud computing. That's much the infrastructure that those technology changes were happening within were very dynamic themselves and could change to adapt to the new technology. Yeah. But you know, this, that with the electric power industry, there are all these changes going on, but you still have these very rigid parameters that have to be, uh, that these changes have to be melded to fit within and around and work with. And so it's a interesting dynamic. There's a tension there that just seems to not apply. And, and as a lot of the, Areas that we've seen severely disrupted uh, by new technological developments in recent decades. Yes, what's that old metaphor, rebuilding an airplane while you're flying it? It's kind of what what comes to mind here. Yeah, it's, yeah. there's uh, consumer preference too. You know, I, I do note that the carb mandate for EVs in California requires a certain number of vehicles to be sold on a staggered basis. I wonder how that works when. The consumer is the one that decides what is purchased and how will they do that. It seems like they're pretty much putting it on car dealers when you come in and say, hey, I like that new, uh, you know, Camry or whatever. And they're like, no, how about this EV? But, you know, it's kind of a, yeah, it's it's really a, a purchase requirement. It's not a manufacturing requirement. Um, it's really a requirement for the California consumer to conform with. Well, I've got one last story here from the Northwest, and it is a lot shorter, a lot less complicated than than EVs uh, and feathering those into the grid and modern life. So Washington and Oregon had an average water year, but it was anything but typical. The water year, which measures the amount of water in the region, region from fall to the end of summer, and really is important for uh, health of fish and hydropower generation. So this uh, water year that we just wrapped up was marked by a series of droughts and floods, very dramatic shifts. So it started with a really wet fall, which then segued into one of the driest winters on record, which was followed by a cold soaking wet spring, which then turned into a bone dry hot summer. <laughs> and that summer drought has finally broken and the region is now experiencing a very wet fall. So the water levels evened out across the calendar months, but the extreme swings uh, did hurt salmon and damaged crops and property. So, yeah, it was typical in the end, uh, or as an average year in the end, but it was a uh, really, really extreme way to get to average. Well, 
That's all from me, Dan Catchpole. Thank you for listening. And as always, please rate and review this podcast however you listen to it. Energy West is edited and produced by our colleagues at Pioneer Utility Resources and Lucky Sound Studio. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at dcatchpole. And Clearing Up is on Twitter at CU News Data. That's the letters C and U, News Data. I'm also on Twitter at Fordney Energy. I apologize ahead of time for anybody heading over there. Um, but yes, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, tune in next week and we'll talk to you then. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. <laughs>